0: Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. My name is Stephanie Aliaga, and I'm a market analyst on the Global Market Insights Strategy team at JPMorgan Asset Management. Throughout much of this expansion, the labor market has been a really bright spot for the economy. Wage growth has risen across sectors at rates not seen since the 1980s, and unemployment has quickly fallen to its pre-pandemic lows. Last week, the May jobs report showed that the labor market has now recovered 96% of the jobs lost during the pandemic, nearly a complete recovery. And today, as investors mold the increasing risk of a U.S. recession, the strength of the labor market can be a double-edged sword. On one end, a healthy labor market with red-hot demand for workers could protect the economy from high unemployment in the next recession. And on the other end, too hot of a labor market gives the Fed a greater need to act aggressively to tame inflation and prevent an overheating economy, which very well might push the economy into a recession. So today we're going to talk about both the short-term and the long-term outlook on the labor market and how this feeds into our thinking about a recession. And I'm going to be interviewing someone who needs no introduction, Dr. David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and the usual host for this podcast. So David, welcome back to the guest seat on Insights Now. Glad to be here. So I just mentioned how the labor market has been a really bright spot for the economy during this expansion. And last week, we got an employment report and the economy saw some pretty solid job gains in May. But while the headline figures were strong, it does look like the pace of recovery in the labor market is beginning to slow down. What are your thoughts on on the latest job report?
1: I think it was pretty encouraging. It was, as you say, pretty strong, 390,000 jobs created. I mean, in the days before the pandemic, we would have said that was a blockbuster number. Uh, But I think it's significant that the unemployment rate didn't come down. This was the third consecutive month of 3.6% unemployment. And actually, we often see this in expansions. I mean, this is a very weird expansion. But if you look at the labor market overall, if you look at the unemployment rate, the unemployment rate uh, on a chart looks a bit like a playground slide. It goes up very steeply. It comes down more slowly, but then it also curves at the end. And that, that seems to be happening again. It seems to be the, the pace at which the unemployment rate is coming down has certainly slowed. And that's actually okay in this case, because we're seeing some other signs of flexibility. Uh, we gained about 330,000 people into the labor force. Some of that is people returning uh, from COVID. Uh, but it's also a sign that you know higher wages are bringing people uh, into the labor market and then also wage growth, it was strong, um, you know, still 5.2% year over year, but it actually was a little weaker than people have thought. So there's, there's signs of flexibility in the job market. I think overall momentum in the economy is slowing. I think you will see that in the job market over the next few months. Uh, but I, I'm really impressed not so much by the strength of this report as some of the signs of flexibility it's showing in the labor market. I think that's a very positive uh, sign if we're hoping to achieve a soft landing here.
0: And David, what, what exactly do you mean by flexibility in the labor market?
1: Well what I mean is that, you know, if it was very rigid then the unemployment rate would, you know, just keep on rolling down and wage growth would just accelerate and accelerate and accelerate and you would end up with with very hot inflation coming from the labour market but what looks like it's happening here is uh, as you approach the limits of this labour market, as you approach the capacity of this labour market, there's a little bit of give in terms of some more workers Uh, there's a little bit of give in terms of maybe a little less job growth Uh, there's a little bit of give in terms of workers not demanding the highest possible wages in order to work and and it's that give that, that I think can allow the economy Economy uh, actually, you know, slow down to a, a sustainable pace without too much damage from high inflation.
0: Mm-hmm. And last week, we also got the JOLT report, which showed that job openings in April came down modestly month over month, but they're still at record high levels. Do you think this is all real demand for workers? Because we've also been seeing some announcements from a variety of firms, mainly in tech, uh, where management is planning to curtail headcount expansion in the coming months. Do you think we might be in for a correction in labor demand?
1: Well, I think we'll see some decline in labor demand. We're really in an unprecedented situation here with um, almost two job openings for every unemployed worker. That That is very unusual. And it is true that some of these job openings might be stale. They, they could have been sitting around for months hoping to hire somebody, but they're just not going to hire somebody. But there's no real incentive for them to get rid of the job opening on their websites or, wh- or whatever. So I think there's a bit of that. What I don't think we're seeing is any increase in layoffs. Um, If you look at the Challenger survey, uh, the monthly survey on layoffs, those are still very low. Um, in the month of May. And then if you look at unemployment claims, unemployment claims, both new unemployment claims and continued unemployment claims are also very low. So I think we're still seeing a very tight labour market. We're seeing an excess demand for labour. Some of it may go away. I think as confidence falls, you may see uh, business confidence falls. You may see some pullback. But we're still in a a really unprecedented situation of having far more more demand for labour than supply of labour in the economy right now.
0: So let's dig a little deeper into that supply problem you mentioned, because a big reason for the slowdown in the labor market recovery is that we're just simply running out of workers. Now, a lot of people dropped out of the labor force during the pandemic. How many of them have come back and how many of them might never come back? Well,
1: I think certainly there are some people who may not come back. Uh, We've also seen, you know, during the pandemic, we saw some very good gains in financial markets. And there's some people who may have been within a few years of being able to retire comfortably who said, you know what, I've actually got enough to retire here and I don't particularly want to go back to the normal nine to five. So I think we may have seen some of that. Uh, and there are also people who just decided, you know, the the pandemic gave us all a chance to reassess our lifestyles and they may not want to come back. But I think that in some ways that is overstated. The, the, the biggest problem with labor supply or the biggest two problems uh, are the retirement of the baby boom and immigration. Uh, So first of all, we've got this huge number of baby boomers who turn 65. And a key thing that happens when you turn 65 in America is you become eligible for Medicare. Uh, And while people can afford, perhaps, you know, you can debate how much income people need when they retire, nobody should feel comfortable retiring unless they got health care covered, because who knows what might happen. But when you're 65, you do have a fair amount of health care coverage coming out of Medicare. And I think that has always caused a fair number of retirements at that point. Anyway, the whole baby boom is hitting that that number, uh, that, that age, you know, gradually over the, over the years. And because of that, the natural growth rate of the US population, say 18 to 64, is uh, actually negative. Now, some of that had been offset in the past by strong immigration uh, and so what we've seen is uh, in the middle of the last decade about a million people in net immigration every year and and if you look at the immigrants they're mostly in working age the working age group uh, much more so than the overall population, immigrants come here to work for the, for the vast majority of cases. But that has really been cut in half by uh, you know tighter restrictions on legal immigration under the Trump administration, and then tr- cut in half again during the pandemic. And that's left us really squeezed in terms of labor. So I think a lot of the, a lot of the problem here is it's not that people have decided to retire or do something completely different. It's just that a lot of people have naturally retired, and there just aren't enough younger workers demographically. To make up for the retirements. Mm
0: -hmm. And apart from the size of the labor pool, the makeup of the labor market has also changed a lot during the pandemic. Do you think that we're on our way back towards a more normal distribution of labor amongst industries today? Or are we in this new uh, post-pandemic labor market?
1: Well, I I I think it sped an evolution that was occurring anyway. So there are uh, so one of the things we saw in this report is that we we changed things around a little bit during the pandemic. Uh, but as the pandemic came to to an end, if you look at uh, the May job report, we actually saw declines in retail employment, but strong increases in employment in places like transportation and trucking and, um, and leisure and hotels. Uh, so some of the service areas which people had not utilized as much during the pandemic, they're coming roaring back. And some of the excess jobs in, in say, things like food retailing uh, are coming down. So I think that'll happen um, and is happening. I also think that this chronic labor supply problem is accelerating the um, movement towards more automation in certain industries. So, for example, uh, I think in, in the restaurant business, uh, you know, far more people are going to be ordering using their own phones and QR codes going forward. Uh, there's going to be less for the wait staff to do because, frankly, you can't find the wait staff. I think we're just on the cusp of moving to a point where we're going to have uh, driverless cars turning into, um, you know, uh, a major form of transporting people from point A to point B. I think that'll change. Uh, so I think there are changes that are going to be brought about by the pandemic. And maybe this uh, the pandemic has accelerated this change, but a lot of it has to do with automation. A lot of it has to do with a lack of um, skilled workers or even a lack of competent workers at lower wages. And that, I think, does mean that we're going to have more capital spending. And some areas of labor just aren't ever going to be as big as they were before.
0: Mm hmm. So over the long term, I guess some of those advances in automation could help the labor supply shortage in in some sectors. But um, it is interesting that in in the near term, um, a deficiency in the supply of workers at restaurants and hotel staff have really sent wages higher. Um, And so that actually brings me to my next question. Wage growth has been really strong during this pandemic. and in the decade before the pandemic happened, wage growth was pretty stagnant. Do you think this new wage growth is going to stick around?
1: I think, it'll, I think this acceleration wage growth will stick around until we have a recession. Uh, I think the um, and that's because of just this huge excess demand for labor. I think it's going to take a while to whittle that down to something more normal. Uh, and by the way, you know, the, the, you know, we're in the investment business, uh, and so of course we think about what this means for corporate profits. But let's uh, let's recognize there's a big positive to this too. I mean, this this growth in wages, and we, and it is stronger for low end wage workers than for upper um, income workers. I mean, this is long overdue, and I think for a long time corporate profits have been gaining relative to wages. So the tables have been been turned. And I think they will remain turned until we have a recession, at which point labor labor demand is going to dry up. And then I think you're going to revert to a situation such as we saw in the first two decades of the century where, yeah, we don't have necessarily lots of excess workers, but workers have got very little bargaining power. Companies are very good at figuring out how to outsource uh, manufacturing jobs or service sector jobs to other countries, workers aren't unionized. So I do think that once we get through the next recession, we may revert to the sort of more recent, pa- the pattern of more recent decades of wages gradually getting eroded in real terms relative to profits. But for now, for the, as long as this expansion continues, I think wage growth will remain strong.
0: Mm-hmm. So we'll enjoy our, our wage raises today. <laughs>
1: yes.
0: Um, now, shifting gears a little bit to talk about the Fed, um, and a primary reason for the Fed's shift towards hawkishness this year has, just, has been just how hot the labor market is. Now the Fed is worried about an overheating economy and very high inflation. In the near term, what does the Fed need to see from the labor market to give them some comfort that the economy may be slowing down on its own, it can find its footing, and they can dial back the hawkishness?
1: They should be looking at the labor market. Uh, Obviously, one of the things they'll want to see is just some calm in terms of wage growth numbers. So they may take a little bit of comfort from the numbers in May, which show the wage growth wasn't quite as strong as people had thought it might be. But I think the Federal Reserve really should look elsewhere. The Fed needs to be forward looking here. I mean, I grew up in an era where people recognize that monetary policy works with long and variable lags. You don't set monetary policy for where the economy is today, you set the monetary policy for where the economy is going to be tomorrow. And we seem to have gotten away from that. But we need to get back to that because the danger is the Federal Reserve reacts to today's very tight labor market and high inflation by over tightening and causing a recession next year. So what does the Fed need to see? I think it needs to see some moderation wage growth. I think as soon as it sees some moderation in job gains, that will be a signal to the 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 a very strong signal to the Federal Reserve that the economy is losing some momentum here. But I think they also look ought to look at things like the federal budget deficit. The the budget deficit's been coming down. The Congressional Budget Office thinks it's going to be about a trillion dollars this year. I actually think it's going to be less than that. And and while that's good from a you know, fiscal situ- uh, stance, it does imply more drag in the economy. So I'd look carefully at government spending, government transfer payments. I'd look carefully at trade. I'd want to know, you know, there is, we're not seeing quite as strong a rebound in the global economy as we'd hoped for because of COVID overseas in China and, and also because of Ukraine. But how strong are our exports? Um, How strong is government spending growth in, in state and local governments? I mean, sometimes What we've seen is state and local governments just can't hire workers, so they're not actually spending the money that they could spend. So I think the Federal Reserve needs to look at the demand side of the economy first. Demand tends to lead the labor market. Look at those demand signals. Where's demand going in the economy? Then think a little bit about the labor market and try to think about it all in terms of not where the economy is right now, but where it's going to be in 2023. I hope that they do that. Um, And if they do do that, they will recognize that while you need to tighten right now, there's no excuse for having interest rates at this lower level. They should adopt a more dovish tone and a more flexible tone later on this year.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'd also like to hear your thoughts on long-run unemployment, because it's worth emphasizing just how low 3.6% on unemployment is by historical standards. Apart from just before the pandemic, unemployment hadn't been that low in over 50 years, and probably longer than that. The Fed, based off its summary of economic projections, is targeting a four percent unemployment rate, which is also pretty decently below the long-run average of six point two percent. When we think about the natural rate of unemployment that's consistent with stable inflation, do you think four percent is too low?
1: I think it probably is. I mean, you you and I have actually been doing a fair amount of statistical work on this, and it's mm-hmm. and it's very it's very difficult because there is a lot of noise in this relationship. You would think that. You know, the relationship, it's sort of the old Phillips curve relationship between the unemployment rate and the inflation rate, you think it'd be pretty clear to identify. But there are a lot of things which which complicates it. And by the way, it shifts over time. Um, and I think that's that's something else that that that's been uh pretty important. Um but what we did notice in our own work was that if you go back to the middle of the last decade, you know, 2012, 2013, even at that point wage growth seemed like it was picking up a bit even though the unemployment rate was far higher than it is right now. And that's one hint to me that maybe maybe the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment is higher than 4%. Our statistical work is also saying that it probably has, on average, been higher than 4%. It has come down um, in recent years. Uh, you know, would say what happens with the unemployment rate is... Uh, if you have a lot of teenagers and a lot of young workers in, in the labor market, it tends to be high because the youngest workers actually have, naturally have a higher unemployment rate. Uh, but as as you get more of the labor market or more of the working age population is, is in the sort of 25 to 55-year-old group, as more people are in that area, then the natural rate of unemployment come has come down. So we think it is below its long-term average right now. We think it may actually begin to turn up a little bit from here. But we think it's below its long-term average. We just aren't sure that it's as low as 4%. And I think that's a really interesting point, because the Fed is targeting 2% inflation and 4% unemployment. But what if 2% inflation isn't consistent with 4% unemployment? It may be that their willingness to keep unemployment at 4% leads to higher inflation uh, than they would really like. And that may be one of the things that's sort of an impediment to getting inflation down to 2%.
0: Mm-hmm. And we bring us to this world of a new normal on inflation that is you know, higher than the range that we used to be in the prior expansion. That's possible. Um, and finally, to wrap up, what are your latest thoughts on the risk of a recession in 2022 and 2023? Apart from the labor market, what should investors look out for and how might they best position portfolios?
1: Well, there is a risk of recession. And of course, people have been talking about this a lot more in the last few weeks. Uh, you know, why do we worry about recession? A few things. I mean, the number one thing that I worry about is massive fiscal drag as the government takes a lot of benefits away from the economy that people become used to. That's slowing the economy down. I'm also worried about high food and energy prices. I mean, if you look back at the last seven recessions in the United States, five of them were preceded by or accompanied by a spike in energy prices. And the reason is it takes money out of the pockets of consumers, but it's also a, a very... Um, visible sign of stress in the system. I mean, you, you, you can't drive two city blocks in America without figuring out the price of a gallon of gasoline. And when it's high, everybody's uh, mad and worried about it. So these things make me more worried about recession. What makes me feel a little bit more comfortable than some people? Uh, well, uh, a few things. I mean, first of all, the cyclical sectors of the economy are really not in, in bad shape right now. I, mean, I used to call these the, the four horsemen uh, of economic disaster, because if you look at things like home building, auto sales, inventory growth, and business fixed investment as a share of GDP, when they got high and then they, a typical recession is one of these sectors is too high. For example, housing in 2008 or business fixed investment in 2000, they get too high and then they crash and that brings the economy down. But all of them are at relatively low levels. I mean, it's very hard to injure yourself jumping out of a basement window. And it's very hard to see these cyclical sectors crashing from levels that are already very low. That's one level of protection. A second, really almost unknowable level of protection comes from the very subject we were talking about earlier on, which is this extraordinary level of job openings. My experience looking at consumer confidence over the years is the problem isn't actually with consumers. Consumer confidence falls, but Americans are frankly consumption addicts here. Uh, Americans you know shop to 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 relieve stress, so when people get worried about the economy, they go out shopping just to feel better about things. I'm not worried about that, but what I have seen in the past is that businesses look at consumer confidence, and say, "Oh, maybe we shouldn't hire people, or maybe we should put push back this this capital spending project, and that could be. But with labor with labor so expensive right now and so scarce, I think there's going to be an impetus to, look, we're going to have to go with the robotics, we're going to have to go with the artificial intelligence, we're just going to have to put the money into it. Um, and equally, if you reduce job openings by a million, by two million, you've still got excess demand for labor. So we may be in this unusual situation of pent-up demand for labor, and high wage growth, which will actually tend to prolong the expansion even when other forces might be slowing it down. So I think it's it's hard to it's this is a particularly difficult time to make a call on whether we will or will not have a recession. I do think the risk of recession is higher now than it was in sort of in say years like 2015-2016. I think the risk of recession is higher because we're closer to full employment. But I think it's by no means a sure thing. I think it's le- less likely to happen in 2022, more likely perhaps in 2023 if it did occur. But I still, as I say, I'd probably better against it even in 2023. The one other thing I would say about it, though, is if we have a recession, unless some other shock causes it, it will be pretty mild, it will be pretty short. Because, as I say, the cyclical sector is already pretty suppressed. They're not going to fall much. And you build up further pent up demand for houses and cars and inventories. Um And then the financial system is also in much better shape than it was in 2008. I don't expect to see any real damage there. So barring some other shock, if we had a recession, I think it'll be mild, it'll be short. And you ask about how to invest. Well, you can't time it. It's hard enough to time a recession. Very difficult. It's even hard to time how markets might anticipate and then react to a recession. Uh, and if you think it's going to be relatively mild and short, and a few years from now, we're going to be growing steadily, much like we did in the last decade, then I think you should almost sort of plan for that. So position a portfolio today, you know, take, pay attention to valuations. Pay, you know, The one thing recessions do is they tend to uh, be very hard on the things that are just nonsense in a portfolio. So if things carry too high valuation, or if, they, if something shouldn't have any valuation at all, um, it'll get hammered in recession. So so look at valuations, but beyond that I wouldn't change strategy that much. Because I do think that if we have a recession, and that's by no means a a sure thing, but if we do, it'll be mild, it'll be short, and we need to build portfolios that will do well, not just in the few months that the American economy is in recession, but in the many years that the American economy is in expansion.
0: Well, thank you, David. That was a great way to wrap up. And you left us with some really impactful points on why investors should try to stay composed in today's climate, where everyone seems to be spooked about a recession. Well, thank you for joining me, David, and thank you all for listening. Thank you. Please also tune in to our next episode, where David Kelly will be joined by Sarah Kapnick, Senior Climate Scientist and Sustainability Strategist for J.P. Morgan, for a conversation on the risk of continued biodiversity loss and its important implications, not just for nature, but for financial stability as well. And until then, I also invite you to read or listen to David Kelly's Notes on the Week Ahead podcast, where every Monday he shares commentary on the latest in the markets and economy to help you stay informed for the week ahead. And for even more timely insights, you can also follow and subscribe to David Kelly's content on LinkedIn. This
1: content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.